at the moment, I guess, uh, it's probably my fault, because apparently Hashem was decreed upon me that I have to live in perpetual construction, because in my other yeshiva, we're also totally messed up. And now we teach here, we're totally messed up here, so I'm the common denominator uh, that is responsible. So I apologize if I brought uh, this inconvenience to you. But anyway, uh, welcome to Eretz Yisrael, welcome to Yerushalayim. Welcome to my notes. Uh, my name is uh, Yitzchak uh, Breidowitz. Uh, I am what is sometimes called a, an FOL, a friend of Lubavitch. I am not a Chabad myself, but I'm very connected to Chabad in a lot of ways. I was just at the retreat in uh, D.C., the national retreat. I think some of you may have been there. So I kind of affiliate in that way. And uh, what we talk about, what this is a course about, is uh, really contemporary halakhic issues. And... Uh, the problem is this course never begins and never ends. It just continues. So as a result, when people are here from last year, they may hear some of the same things because we just kind of go on. And uh, for, for a lot of people, the topic will be new. For some people, the topic may be repetitive. So there's no real way to make everything new for every single person because uh, we have to cover certain topics in every situation. So I thought for, so, so the types of things we talk about, we talk about marriage, we talk about divorce, we talk about medical ethics, uh, we talk about the environment, uh, we talk about the impact of technology on Shabbos and the like, kind of you no know, modern halachic issues, surrogate motherhood, cloning, stem cell research, organ transplantation, prenuptial agreements, uh, the issue of uh, the halachic status of the state of Israel, uh, issues about the army, land for peace, uh, hostage release, you know, in exchange to get people back, right? All of these types of contemporary issues. So I think you'll find, hopefully you'll find it uh, interesting. And one of the things you will see, and of course uh, you, you see it in all of your courses, is that although life is ever changing, life is always changing, new things are always happening, but the principles of Hashem's Torah are constant and are fixed, and with the proper understanding of the Torah, you can try to apply uh, the eternal principles of the Torah to the ever-changing vicissitudes of life. So life does change. Life is very dynamic, but it's all based on the structure of the Torah. Now, the other thing you will see, which may, may make people uncomfortable, is that although the basic principles of Jewish law are well-established or agreed upon, but a lot of times in application there will be machlokas. Machlokas means there will be arguments, there will be dissension. But so people ask the question, well, if everything comes from God, you know, how could there be so many disagreements? Uh, but the short answer is, you know, God gives the principles, but God leaves it to human beings, even great human beings, to apply those principles to every different situation. And as the Rambam writes, even people with the same principles might differ how to apply those principles to a given situation. So I don't give any tests, but if you're ever given a halachic test and you're asked a question, uh, if you answer, it's a machlokas, you'll probably get at least half credit, because no matter what the question is, it's a machlokas is always a relatively safe answer, because there are so many areas of life in which there are indeed poskim, uh, that means uh, rabbinic authorities of halacha, who look at things in, in different ways. Okay, any... Uh, if there's any questions yet or, or the like, feel free to interrupt me with questions or comments. I sometimes, especially when I'm tired, I lapse into Hebrew. <laughs> uh, 
So if, if uh, any word is not familiar, please raise your hand or just stop me and I will, if I can remember English, I will, I will remember to use the proper uh, English, uh, English term. Okay? All right. So I could begin anywhere, but I thought today uh, we'll, we'll, we'll devote now in the next few weeks to uh, marriage and divorce. Uh, these are issues that are probably on your mind one way or the other. Yeah? Can I just ask, is that all Yeah, I, I do apologize, and again, I, I consider myself spiritually responsible for all of this because I have the exact situation about two miles from here, but I, I will try to talk a little louder. It's a little hard for me, but okay. Thank you. No, I'm sorry. Yeah. We're all trying to I, I understand. I, I appreciate the, the stress that, that, that you are under. Maybe if I move a little closer, it'll be a little, little easier as, as well. Uh, first, uh, let's talk about uh, the idea of marriage. Uh, according to... Maimonides, there is actually a mitzvah to get married. Now let me point out, this is not only because of having children. The very first mitzvah in the Torah is a mitzvah pru or vu, be fruitful and multiply. It is a divine commandment to, I would say, to try to have children. I'm not going to say a divine commandment to have children, because that's not up to you per se, but there's a divine commandment to try. And this is based on what Hashem said to Adam and Eve. Pru or vu, be fruitful and multiply. Uh, let me talk about that a little bit, but then I'm going to talk about marriage. Now, there's a funny thing about the mitzvah appropriation. How many kids are you supposed to have? Meaning to say, is there any point where you can simply stop? So there is a minimum. You have not fulfilled the mitzvah until you have a son and a daughter. So if you have 10 boys or 10 girls, sorry, you haven't done the mitzvah yet, you gotta keep on going till you have a boy and a girl. Once you have a boy and a girl, you have fulfilled the Torah's commandment. Which would mean, in theory, this is really theory, in theory, once there's a boy and a girl, I've done my mitzvah. However, there is a verse in the prophet Isaiah, Yeshayahu, uh, which says the following, Lo sohu bara'ah la sheves yitzara, which basically means God did not create the world to be desolate. God created the world to be inhabited. This is understood in the Gemara to mean that even when you have fulfilled the basic commandment of Pru Urvu, which is boy-girl, there is an additional mitzvah to have more children. Now, the reason why I'm making this difference, I'm, I'm, I'm not going to give a share on birth control today, I'll, I'll hit it later, but I just want to make a point that whenever uh, a couple talks to a rabbi about contraception, there is a big difference if it's before you have the boy and the girl and after you have the boy and the girl. That, that's a big demarcation point, meaning to say there's a lot more leniency. I mean, halacha permits it in all cases when it's necessary, but in terms of leniency, the halacha is much more lenient after you have the boy-girl than before you have the boy-girl, because before you have the boy-girl, you have the Torah command of pru or vu, after you have the boy-girl, you only have the prophetic statement called Blashevet, 
and halacha does assign a different weight to those different things. Again, I'm not telling you how to come out in any case. I just want to show you that that's an important factor. Now, another part of Puruva was going to be very bizarre to you. The mitzvah of having children is a mitzvah that is on men. Women do not have the mitzvah of having children. What, what on earth does that even mean? That means I as a man, if I'm capable of having children myself, I am halakhically obligated to try to marry a woman that's able to have children. But if a woman is able to have children and she wants to marry a man who cannot, that would be permitted because she does not have the mitzvah of procreation. The mitzvah of procreation is on the man and not on the woman. Now, two questions. How do we know that? And number two, why? What's the logic of it? Two different questions. One is, what is the source? And the other is, what is the logic? So the source is from the language of the verse itself. The verse itself says, be fruitful and multiply, fill the land and conquer it. Note the word conquer it, dominate it. Chazal say, Chazal is an abbreviation, Chachameinu Zichronam Livracha, our sages of blessed memory. So we have a quickie abbreviation, Chazal. So Chazal are the sages in the Mishnah, the Gemara, the Medrash. Just to give you a little historical perspective, uh, Rashi, people like Rashi, people like Rambam, people like Ramban, even though they're great, great, great rabbis of the Middle Ages, we don't call them Chazal. Chazal is a term that is reserved for Mishnah, Gemara, and Medrash. Right? So we say, hey, is there anything in the Gemara? We say Chazal say. So Chazal say that since the Torah uses the word conquest for procreation, conquest is a male activity. It's a military activity. Women are not involved in conquest, therefore women are exempt. Now that's how you know it. But what's the logic? Why on earth would a woman not be obligated in procreation? So I'll give you two reasons, which move in opposite directions, but both reasons are correct. One reason is that women, as a general matter, as a general matter, have a stronger instinct and desire to have children than men. There is a strong maternal instinct and that is coupled with a biological clock. Men are not as circumscribed by a biological clock as women. Men theoretically could father a child, you know, even in their 80s or, or, or whatever it would be. So consequently, women don't need a commandment of procreation because this is something that on their own they would gravitate to do. Most of the time, obviously, there are going to be exceptions. <coughs> a man, on the other hand, thinks he has all the time in the world, so he'd like to sow his wild oats and not settle down. So the Torah gives commandments to people who otherwise wouldn't do it or might not do it. That's reason one. Reason two almost moves the opposite way. You know, pregnancy and childbirth can affect a person's health in a very significant way. Uh, to this very day, even in developed countries, the rate of women even dying in childbirth is not totally ins insignificant. 
So the Torah is not going to command a woman to put herself in a dangerous situation. The Torah commands the man find a life partner who wants to do this. Yes, that's my obligation. But the Torah is not going to tell the woman, you have to get pregnant and bear a child because God is not going to tell you to put yourself in danger. If you want to do it, then yes, indeed, uh, it's a great, great thing. So, all I want to say on that matter, again, I'm not going to give, I will get to abortion, uh, uh, birth control, well, we will get to it, but right now I just want you to be aware of these two ideas, pru or vu, which is the Torah commandment, la shevet, which is the prophetic injunction, and the fact that it's a mitzvah for men and not a mitzvah for women. Now, practically what this means is, therefore, a fertile woman is allowed to marry an infertile man, but technically, technically, a fertile man is not allowed to marry an infertile woman if he knows ahead of time. So this raises an interesting question. I, 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 I mamish got this question today from somebody. That is, let's say you have a woman who was never married, and the woman, let's say, is in her mid-50s. So, presumably, she, she will not have a child. And people are proposing shiduchim with her, with men, maybe they were married, maybe they were divorced, but men who don't have a son and a daughter, men who have not fulfilled the mitzvah, be fruitful and multiply. So she asked me, is she allowed, since the probability is she will not have children, is she allowed to date men who have not fulfilled the commandment of being fruitful and multiplying? Or to put it another way, is the man allowed to date a woman that is, that's his age? Meaning, what's a 50-year-old man supposed to say? Is the man supposed to say, I'm sorry, I will only go out with 20-year-olds because of pru or vu or 30-year-olds? <coughs> it's, it's, it's an issue because both on the men and the women's side, you sometimes have older, bachelors or bachelorettes. Uh, so if the man has his son and a daughter, no problem. He's free to marry anybody he wants. But if he doesn't, you have a problem. Yeah? If he has children with a non-Jewish woman, so the children ah, are Okay, excellent question. Very, very excellent question. Uh, if he has even a hundred children from a non-Jewish unconverted woman, meaning she did not convert to Judaism, because those children are non-Jewish, uh, he has not fulfilled his mitzvah of Puru. What if the children convert? Ah, excellent question. If the children convert, uh, that is an argument in the Gemara, but we actually paskin that if they were born from a non-Jewish mother, even if they converted, uh, he, they are not called his children, and therefore he does not fulfill the mitzvah. So in truth, any kids he has from a non-Jewish woman, woman will not be considered a mitzvah whether they convert, whether they don't convert. Now, let's switch a little bit. If a non-Jewish man had children from a non-Jewish woman, and then everybody converts, that might be a little different. The difference is that when a Jew, because of matrilineal descent, that Jewish identity is based on the mother, the problem is when a Jewish man has kids from a non-Jewish woman, halachically, they're not even his children. Emotionally they are, I'm not saying that, right? 
But when a non-Jewish man has kids from a non-Jewish woman, they are his children. So when he converts, they could count. You see? That, that's, the, that's an important difference. Okay. Uh, all right. So the short answer, I think, is a matter of common sense. And that is, listen, yeah, uh, if the 50-year-old guy could, could get a, 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 a kala that's a childbearing age, that's going to be fine. But at some point, the probabilities are not good. And if they're not good, his choice is not to marry a woman who can have children or another woman. His choice is marry the older woman or don't get married at all. Obviously, it's better to be married. Uh, so as a result, once a man reaches a certain age, we're going to tell him to stop worrying about the children issue. He has to worry about uh, getting married, which is ultimately more important. Yeah. Um, is that one of the reasons why women aren't Yes. Um, the second reason, by commanding men, you are technically forcing women to be Well, let me put it this way. In a limited sense, meaning to say we're basically telling a woman you will not be able to get married unless you're willing to assume this burden. So I, I, I see your point that on some level that could be regarded as, as, as coercive. But as I say, the woman may have an option. I, mean, I, I know this is not a perfect thing. An option of, of a man who already has children, etc. There are certain options. It's not a direct coercion. But as I say, uh, most of the time, you know, people, most men, most women want to have children. So most of the time it's non-coercive in that, in that sense. Now, okay, so all of this is the general mitzvah of procreation. But here's a very important point to keep in mind. The mitzvah of marriage... Some people say, oh, it's a mitzvah to get married because you're supposed to have kids, which implies that marriage has a value only if there are children. That is not true. That is absolutely not true. Judaism recognizes marriage as a holy, significant, deep, meaningful relationship, whether there are children or not. Children are a blessing, children are a mitzvah, no question about it. But they are not what makes a marriage holy. All, all of you know, the very word for marriage is kiddushin. And the word kiddushin is holiness, sanctification. Even sexual relations. We do not consider, now obviously, Judaism has many, many boundaries in the men-woman relationship. Right? We don't believe in sex before marriage. We don't even believe in hugging and kissing uh, before marriage. Right? We're very strict in that. A man and a woman generally cannot be alone you know, in a room. We have all sorts of rules. But that's not because, it is not because sex is dirty or improper. It's the other way around. Because marital intimacy is holiness, it is creating love and bonds between people. It is so special that we want to leave it and limit it to a sanctified relationship, which is marriage. So it's very, very important to understand that the purpose of marriage is not only for procreation. Even if a couple is not blessed with children, and we know the Rebbe himself and his Rebbe and we're not blessed with biological children. But there is a holiness and a goodness and a greatness in that relationship itself. And that's a very important idea to, to recognize. 
uh, even marital intimacy is considered to be a mitzvah even when, even after menopause, even when there's no uh, chance of having children, even after a woman had a hysterectomy or, or whatever, whatever it would be, because that's a, that's a mitzvah. That's a way of connecting husband and wife. Yeah. Um, when a man has fulfilled his obligation if he has a woman and they're not married, yes, that, that's an interesting point. That is an interesting point. I don't, I don't want to. I don't want to advertise that. But but yes, technically, technically, uh, even children born out of wedlock. As long as they're from Jewish, as long as it's from a Jewish woman, one does fulfill approval. Oh, mom, okay, 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 so now I'm going to explain it. I'm glad that you're bringing up these questions because there's a lot of supplementary knowledge we need to clarify. Uh, in secular terms, a child born out of wedlock, that simply means man and woman are not married. I mean, today it's nothing, but in the olden days, not even 50 years ago, that's the olden days, there was all sorts of names we gave to children born out of wedlock. We called them illegitimate children. That, that term is almost not even used today, but when I was growing up, illegitimate child or bastard child. I'm not being profane here, literally the term is a bastard child. And in Hebrew, we also have a term for illegitimate child called mamzer. Now, it's very important, another bit of knowledge, that you understand the difference between mamzer in the Torah and illegitimate child in secular law. A mamzer is not a child born out of wedlock. Or to put it another way, a child that is born out of wedlock is a perfectly fine Jew with no disability at all. Okay? If a man and a woman are not married, and they have intercourse. They're not supposed to. Again, again, premarital sex is not permitted by halacha. It's not like when you got married, though, it's like you're yeah, previously... So you, you do what? Forgive it? Yeah, well, well if, you do, if you do shuvah, yeah, if you do shuvah, then that's true. But, but certainly you're not allowed uh, in the first instance. But if they have children, and those children are Jewish, because mom is Jewish, there is no disability. A mom's heir is a child born out of adultery or incest. Very important. So, what's an example of a mamzer? If a married Jewish woman has a child from another man, that child is called a mamzer. Now that's a very unfortunate status to, to have. The child is still Jewish. A mamzer is a Jew. A mamzer counts for a minion. A mamzer can be called to the Torah, meaning a mamzer is a regular Jew, but he does have a very severe disability. Someone that is a mamzer is not allowed to marry any other Jew unless a mamzeris, unless it's a female of the same situation, or they can marry a convert, a Jew, a Jew by conversion. And, unfortunately, no matter who they marry, the kid is going to be a mamzer. So it keeps on going and going and going and going. Now this is when the woman committed adultery or got, or even, even rape, even rape, God forbid, if there was a pregnancy through a rape, or if, God forbid, there was incest such as brother-sister, father-daughter, that would be mamzer. Out of wedlock, is not a mamzer. Only 
adultery or incest. Now, here's another thing, and some of these are going to be a bit of a problem. The adultery has to be on the part of the woman. The married woman committed adultery. If the husband committed adultery with a single woman, so, so, so from the side of the woman there was no adultery, then that is treated as an out-of-wedlock relationship and the kid is not a mom. So it's important that you get this definition because this is going to pop up in a lot of shilas that we're going to be discussing. And that is, mamzer is product of female adultery or incest. And a mamzer has a marital disability. The mamzer is Jewish, but the mamzer has a marital disability. Um, if the if it is a uh, just premarital or if it's out of wedlock, no mamzer problem. If the husband commits adultery with a single woman, no mamzer problem. And let me mention yet another aspect. If the female, if the wife commits adultery with a non-Jew, it's also not a mamzer. It's, it's interesting that if a married Jewish woman committed adultery with a non-Jew, the kid is Jewish because she's Jewish, and the kid is not a mamzer. Right, so it has to be adultery with a Jewish man. Yeah. Why isn't the kid a monster if it's a Jewish man? Yeah, so, so the reason is this. The reason is that under Torah, of course I'm going to answer a question with another question really. You could ask me what's the reason. A man is allowed to have more than one wife under Torah. Polygamy is permitted. So if a man is allowed to have more than one wife, then technically on a biblical level it is not adultery if he's with another woman who's not married, because he would be allowed to marry her if he wanted to. You see, in other words, it's a logical extension that if a man is allowed to marry more than one woman, then by definition, he can't treat his relationship with that woman as adulterous. Now, as you know, uh, polygamy has been banned rabbinically since the 11th century, but on a Torah level, it is, it is not adultery. Yeah. And a man who has a child with a married woman and the yeah. child's a mamzer yeah. has fulfilled his obligation as well going back to Peru. Uh, so that's, that's a fascinating question. I did say that you do fulfill Peru without of wedlock children. I did say you do not fulfill Peru with children you have from a non-Jewish woman, a man because they're Gaia. What about, can I fulfill Peru by mamzer? A <laughs> man commits adultery with a married woman. So that's an interesting, that's an interesting question. Uh, many opinions say not. Some opinions say yeah. You know, but uh, that, 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 that is that's kind of an open question whether that should happen. Uh, yeah. What about when a man has a child Oh wow. Yeah. Uh, well, that, that, that's 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 an interesting question. The question would be basically be this. I want. I mean, on one hand, I mean, it's horrendous. I don't want to give a guy credit. Hey, you know, he, he raped and he gets a mitzvah out of it. There is a principle. This would be the question. There is a principle that when you do a mitzvah, in fact, this would also answer the mom's issue, when you do a mitzvah through a sin, not only do you have a sin, but you don't have a mitzvah either. An example would be, if I stole a lulav to use during sukkahs, uh, not only have I committed the sin of theft, but I don't have a mitzvah, my blessing was in vain, because mitzvahs that are done by sin 
are, are worthless. So the question becomes, if one gets... Say that? Uh, well, okay, well, 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 that's true. <laughs> the reason is because you're not taking the actual object, you're using it through something. So that's good. Well, okay, I say, well, you, I better prepare for this class. I see <laughs> that uh, you are advanced Talmudic scholars. You are correct. Chopra is an exception to that principle. But on the other hand, when it comes to procreation, I think we're back to the principle, and that is, you are, not you, and I you, I mean the man. The man is fulfilling a mitzvah by raping uh, a, a, a woman, so I think we might apply the logic that that's a mitzvah that comes to a sin, and therefore there's no mitzvah that's done in that way. Now, but, 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 but let me, on the other hand, the child is his child, which means he does have paternal responsibilities. In other words, the fact, to be sure you understand this, the fact that he's not mekayen pruergo does not mean he does not have obligations towards that child. Right? If a child is generated through rape, the rapist is the halachic father. The rapist must support him. The rapist must... Uh, now, maybe the mother is not interested. I understand that. But he cannot get off the hook by saying, hey, I only raped you. I mean, uh, he is fully responsible for that child. Yeah. So this child who's a mamzer, they were not in control of anything to where they got this status. Yeah. Why is there no place for them to, like, yeah. so th- do th- this or anything? Th- this is the great question. You know, one of the great, great... Mamzer is one of the most difficult theological questions in the halakhic structure of the Torah. Because the mamzer is the totally innocent baby who grows up into an adult. And the mamzer did nothing wrong. The mamzer was never given a chance at all to fix the situation. And the mamzer is totally at the mercy of the sins that one or both of his parents committed. Uh, and indeed, the Medrash quite graphically talks about the fact that the tears of the mamzer goes all the way to God in heaven. Because it is a heart-rending situation. Uh, and, I, and I don't have a complete answer. All I can tell you is this, that mamzer is a graphic reminder that sins have consequences. I mean, let me point out, I mean, let, let's take AIDS as an example. You know, let, let's, say, let's say you have an intravenous uh, drug user who gets pregnant and the baby has AIDS. Mm-hmm. Now, you could still say, you know, why does that happen? How could that happen? How, how could an innocent baby get AIDS because the, the mother was an intravenous drug user or, or whatever it would be? The answer would be that people have to know that their actions don't only have consequences for them. You know, we sometimes have the attitude, oh, what I do is my own business. What I do affects me. What I do doesn't affect other people. Uh, it's nobody's business if I sin or I don't sin. Well, AIDS is a good reminder. HIV is a good reminder that there are consequences to our actions that go beyond ourselves. And Mamzer is that reminder as well. There are tragic victims. Some people describe adultery as consensual adultery or consensual incest as a victimless crime, if it's consensual. Obviously, if it's rape. But the point that Mamzer teaches us is there are no victimless crimes. There are going to be people that suffer. So you're right. It's a very, very difficult question. By the way, let me just mention one issue about Mamzer. Now, Baruch Hashem, actual cases of adultery and incest might be relatively rare. But in the modern, non-religious world, consider the following. When you are Jewishly married, a Jewish marriage can only be terminated 
by a Jewish divorce. And a Jewish divorce is called a get, get in English, G-E-T, which is a ceremony where the husband gives a document, a handwritten document to the wife. Now, if a Jewish woman remarries, even after a civil secondary divorce, and does not have her get, her child from the second marriage is technically a mamzer. Now, if nobody's religious, nobody cares. I mean, people can go through life not caring. But here is the scenario that we face quite often. Mom got a divorce from hubby number one. There was no get. Not because of Aguna, not because he was withholding again. They didn't care. They, right? You got to get from husband number one. She marries husband number two with a valid marriage license. Everything is legal. Everything is legal. No adultery here in the common speech. They have a kid. 25 years later, this kid decides, whether it's a boy or a girl, man or a woman, decides to become religious. They now become a religious Jew. They now discover, like you're learning today, that they were born from a second marriage where the first marriage didn't have a get. In the eyes of Jewish law, the second marriage is adulterous. You see a mamzer? He or she? They can't get married to regular, regular Jews. Now, this is a situation that's quite common. This is not the mamzer of intentional adultery or rape or incest. But this is mamzer that arises from the fact that until a get is given, any remarriage is, in the eyes of Jewish law, adultery. Yeah. Why can't a mom marry someone who is born Jewish, but they can't marry a convert because they're still a Jew? Yeah, that, that's an excellent question. Uh, generally speaking, obviously, a convert is a Jew. A ger is a Jew. We don't, we don't call them a non-Jew. They are a Jew. They are a Jew by choice, and in many ways, they are even more honored than a Jew. You know, of course, that Moshiach is descended from a convert, and that is Rus the Moabite. Rus is a Moabite, was the Moabite convert. She was the great-grandmother of King David, and Mashiach will come from King David. So Rus is the ancestor of Mashiach itself. And yet, and yet, this is the one case where one might interpret, I think incorrectly, that this is kind of treating the Gare in a second-hand status by saying, oh, a mamzer can't marry a regular Jew, regular Jew, quotation marks, but a mamzer could marry a convert because uh, converts not uh, not so good. Now, obviously, that that overall would not would not be correct. So uh, I'm going to leave that as a question. All I can tell you is that it's not indicative of a general second class status. We don't believe in that generally, but for this purpose, the Torah gave us a leniency, perhaps simply because the Torah wanted to enlarge the scope of who a mamzer could marry, so it adopted uh, an expanded category. But uh, I don't have a, I myself, this is a question that's bothered me for many years, and I don't have a compelling answer. But let me just say one thing, I'll, I'll take it a second. Let me just mention one thing, one way out that we have for the people, I don't know if any of you are born from second marriage, I don't want to scare you, uh, and the like, that is, we have a responsa from Rabbi Moshe Feinstein, if you haven't heard of this rabbi, uh, you should hear of him. Rav Moshe Feinstein died in 
1986, 85 or 86, been a long time already, but he was considered to be uh, the greatest rabbinical authority in halacha in the latter part of the 20th century. He came from Russia. Uh, in fact, there's some interesting exchanges between Rav Moshe Feinstein and Lubavitcher Rebbe on matters of halacha and the like. And here's what Rav Moshe Feinstein said. Rav Moshe Feinstein said a very brilliant analysis. The rule that a marriage needs to get is only if it was a halachically valid marriage. If it was not a halachically valid marriage, you didn't need to get to begin with. So Rav Moshe Feinstein said, many marriages, if not most, that were conducted under conservative or reform auspices were not halachically valid. Now, let, let's stop right there. Let's ask why. As I can make a statement that if a Jewish marriage, well, first of all, a civil marriage is civil, and a Jewish marriage that was conducted conservative or reformed, what Moshe says is generally not going to be valid. What makes a marriage halachically valid or not halachically valid? Very, very important. Yeah. Uh, actually not, actually not. The ketubah is a requirement, but even if there's no ketubah, it could still be a valid marriage. It's actually witnesses. What makes a marriage valid is not the synagogue where it's held, and it's not even the rabbi who officiates. The rabbi who officiates might be, you know, might be reformed, might be a woman, might be transgender, whatever it might be. The identity of the rabbi and the place where it takes place does not determine whether the marriage is valid or not. What determines whether the marriage is valid or not is that there have to be two kosher witnesses who are witnessing the man giving a ring to the woman. And by a kosher witness, I mean the following. They have to be men, they have to be two. They have to be men. They have to be Jewish. They have to be above bar mitzvah. They cannot be related to each other or related to the bride or the groom. And they must be Shabbos and Kashrut observant. Why do we have three, though, now? Most people do three witnesses. Why? Where do you have three? I'm not familiar with that. I don't know. Mm, my rabbi told us that my sister got married after three witnesses. Three witnesses for marriage? not familiar with that. We have three, not for conversion, when somebody converts to Judaism, you have to have three rabbis because they, they function as a court, a basin. Yeah. A basin is three. But witnesses are only two. I'm not sure why... Uh, also, somebody got called in because one of their witnesses out of the three was um, a cousin, and okay, that, 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 yeah. they had to get re-grouped with somebody else. Uh, okay, this, is, this is a new one to me. You, you actually were told at a wedding that uh, they have three witnesses. I don't know. I, I actually, I literally have not heard that. We have a lot of students with this. Yeah. Is it that they have to be bar mitzvah or above bar mitzvah age? Oh, no, no. Okay, okay. I'm, I'm glad you mentioned, mentioned that point. Bar mitzvah is age. In other words, ceremony. See, bar mitzvah ceremony uh, doesn't mean anything. You, you, don't, you don't need a bar mitzvah ceremony, and a girl doesn't need a bas mitzvah ceremony. Uh, when a boy is 13, he is automatically bar mitzvah, when a girl is 12, she is automatically bas mitzvah. Uh, the presence or absence of a confirmation ceremony 
or being called to the Torah or having a party, uh, whatever it is, that uh, has no status under Jewish law. So whenever I say bar mitzvah, I just refer to an age, nothing, nothing else. So if you think about it, at most conservative reform weddings, the witnesses are not going to be kosher. So Rabbi Feinstein said, well, wait a second. If the witnesses aren't kosher, it's not a marriage. If it's not a marriage, you don't need a get. If you don't need a get, then marriage number two is not adultery. If marriage number two is not adultery, kid is not a monster. Brilliant. Now, what if marriage number two is not kosher, though? Is kid in trouble? No, he's not. Because all that means is he was born out of wedlock. It's okay to be born out of wedlock. Mom and dad should get married kosher, that's true. And a lot of Chabad Shaluchim, you know, do perform remarriages for people in their 50s or whatever it would be, or 60s or 70s. But that doesn't affect the kid. This is an important point. The fact that marriage number two is not kosher, that doesn't affect the kid at all because he's just not a wedlock kid. Not a wedlock kid is not a monster. Only a kid born from adultery is momser, and by negating the validity of marriage number one, we've avoided the problem of momser. This is a very important point. Now, this, has, this is used quite often. In any institution that has students who come from non-religious backgrounds, we have this problem. Okay, you know, again, I'm not, I'm not interested in you know, anyone having to discuss their, their particular issue, but this is an important issue, meaning to say, uh, because the divorce rate rises, there are many people who are born from second Jewish marriages where the first Jewish marriage may not have had a get. And as a result, there may be a concern with Mamser. And Rabbi Moshe Feinstein has given us a solution to thousands and thousands of these cases. Now, I want to point out that Rabbi Feinstein's solution is not unanimously agreed upon. Have you heard of the term, it's a legal term, common law marriage. So a common law marriage is a concept that some states in the United States have that even if something was not a legal marriage with a marriage license, if husband and wife lived together, or a man and woman lived together as calling themselves husband and wife, so it morphs, it turns into a marriage even without the legalities. So there are some posts who actually say Halacha itself recognizes something called common law marriage, meaning to say, even if the marriage ceremony was invalid because you didn't have kosher witnesses, if they live together as husband and wife, they become married. And if that's the case, we're back to square one. That's going to make the kid a mamzer for marriage number two. So there are some poskim who are very strict on this, but, but the consensus in the Torah community is to follow Rabbi Moshe Feinstein's guideline. That has really helped a lot of, a lot of people. Uh, yeah. Are there repercussions for a child who's born when one of the parents is a mamzer, but only one of them? Yeah, unfortunately, mamzer is a dominant gene. So if <laughs> either, either parent is a mamzer, he becomes 100% mamzer, not a half mamzer, 100% mamzer. Now, interestingly enough, there is one way the taint of mamzer could be removed. Well, there are two ways, there are two ways. Uh, let me give you, uh, I'll give you the first way, which may be common, but it's forbidden. Let's imagine 
a person is a mamzer. He's a male mamzer born from adultery. He has a predicament. If he marries a giyoret, their kid is a mamzer. If he marries a mamzeret, female, the kid is a mamzer. And if he marries a regular Jewish woman, which he's not allowed to do anyway, but the kid will become mamzer no matter what. So what can he do? So let's consider this. Let's say he marries, not a giyoret, he marries a non-Jewish woman. Now, is he allowed to do that? Absolutely not. Intermarriage is forbidden for a mamzer just like it's forbidden for anybody. He's not allowed to do it, and triple underline that. But if he does, and has a kid, the kid is a guy, right? Because if the mother is a guy. If the guy then converts, there is a principle that conversion erases all prior status. So as a result, if a mamzer has relations with a non-Jewish woman, again, triple underline, which he's not allowed to do. Because the child is a non-Jew, conversion of that child will take off the stigma of mamzer. And at that point, there'll be no mamzer anymore. So that's a way of ending it, but that's an impermissible way. Now, there is a permissible... Uh, maybe I'll skip it. Yeah. How do you, like... What if, like, way down the, like, up the generation tree, like, there is mamzer, and then, so what if they got lost somewhere? So this is a very important principle. Mamzer, in theory exists forever and ever and ever and ever and ever. It never dies unless you have a guy, you know, not. But, but, we don't investigate it, meaning to say once it is forgotten, we lay it to rest, meaning we are not supposed to try to uncover these things. There is a principle in the Gemara that unless you become aware of a problem, and once you become aware of a problem, you cannot ignore it, but you don't dig. You leave people alone, and you let things be alone. This is actually a principle that's in the Talmud itself. Let me mention another principle, too, which is quite amazing. The Talmud has another principle about Mamzer that you assume, even if you know that a woman committed adultery, you assume all pregnancies are from her husband, unless the husband was in jail or not in the country or whatever it is. Which means to say the following. If a woman commits adultery and nine months later she has a kid and the kid looks just like the guy she committed adultery with and maybe there's even a DNA test that says he's that kid. Halacha actually says, nope, we assume it's from her husband. It's really a way in which Mamzeris is going to be negated in so many cases because of the halachic presumption that she was with her husband, unless, as I say, her husband was out of the country or her husband was in jail. But halacha bends over very, very backwards to try to avoid the problem of mamzer. And as I say, many opinions hold that even a DNA test cannot make somebody a mamzer. What a confession. Confessions? Absolutely not. That's, a, that's also a very good point. A woman... I'll tell you a story about this. They actually have a story. I don't know if it's true. It's may, maybe it's an urban legend, but, but this is a story that's been very well known. And it involves Rabbi Moshe Feinstein, interestingly enough, that he was officiating at a wedding, and the boy had lost his mother several years before. And his mother gave him a locket around his neck, 
and with instructions that he was supposed to open, I mean, it's, it's kind of a crazy story. He was supposed to open the locket on the day of his marriage. So he figured, you know, he was going to open up the locket and it would say, you know, I love you or whatever it is. It would be like some words of comfort. So instead, the locket said, um, you know, you are not uh, the son of uh, who you thought was your father. I committed adultery with somebody. Meaning to say, you're a mom's <laughs> message. Message from the grave. Now, why, why the mother would say, open it up at the wedding makes no sense to me. Like, unless she's sadistic, but whatever it is. So, so the boy opens up the locket under the chuppah. He's a religious boy, religious boy. He turns white. He starts shaking. And Rabbi Feinstein asks, what's wrong, what's wrong, what's wrong? He hands her, the, he, uh, he hands Rabbi Moshe the message. And Rabbi Moshe just uh, rips up the paper, puts it in his pocket, and continues the marriage ceremony. In other words, even mom's confession is not accepted in halacha. So then, how would someone know, like, oh, if, so, if there was like incontributable proof, like the husband was in jail? Well, well, DNA is pretty strong proof, and even that's not enough. But if the husband's in jail, if the husband's out of the country, etc., that would be an example. But but other than that, it's almost impossible to make somebody a mom's yeah. because of that rule. Okay, uh, yeah. Um, can a mom's Well, I, I don't think he's allowed to keep it a secret. Meaning to say, um, in terms of the pe- in terms of the people who don't know, they don't have to investigate, and they so they're not committing. Can the parents decide not to tell the child? Yeah, I, I, I think I think there's a, I think there's a real problem. Meaning meaning you're not allowed to ignore what you know. So the child is okay. You know, if he doesn't know, what he doesn't know doesn't hurt him. But you're not allowed to deliberately. Conceal. So this, these are difficult issues. Uh, yeah. Um, I feel like I learned somewhere that ten generations down, the whole family. Okay, so that that's a common mistake because the, what you are what you're saying is correct. The Torah says a mamzer may not marry into the Jewish folk for up to ten generations. That is actually the language in Deuteronomy. But Chazal say in the Gemara that ten generations is an expression. That means in perpetuity, meaning to say it's not limited to ten. That just means forever. Yeah. Oh yeah. Well, that, that was the question you asked before. Yes, that, that's correct. Well, all right. So, so here you have to be a little more, a little more exact. The Torah does not say a mamzer cannot marry a Jew. If, if it would say a mamzer cannot marry a Jew, that would absolutely include a convert. Rather, the Torah uses a particular language. A mamzer may not enter the congregation, kahal, which is a very unusual term that's not used very often. And kahal is said to have a specialized definition that would not include the, the, the convert. Uh, so it's not that the convert is not Jewish, but the convert is not within the, tr- the meaning of that term kahal. Now, as I told you before, uh, the actual logic of it is hard for me to understand. I, 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 and I'm not you to think about it. Uh, because it's inconsistent with, with the overall structure of the Torah that cherishes the convert and elevates the convert to a point of great esteem. I mean, as you know, uh, if you make fun of a convert, uh, you can't make fun of any Jew. Any, any Jew that's improper, any person is improper. 
But for a convert in particular, uh, if you make fun of them in any way, you transgress 36 sins in the Torah. So the Torah is very, 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 very particular about honoring and cherishing those who join the Jewish people by choice. So this is an anomaly. I, I, I will admit to you, and it's something that we need to think about uh, if we can figure out why. Yeah. Would it be best for a momser to just not get married then? So then you kind of like knock out that gene? Well, you know, it, it's, it's, it's might, I'm sorry, it might be best, but, but on, the other, on the other hand, the Torah doesn't deny him, you know, again, a momser or a momseret, you know, still craves companionship and craves relationship, and the Torah does not deprive them of that, meaning that the Torah gives you that option. But if it's a reminder that your actions have consequences, wouldn't yeah. it be best to kind of, like, move on instead of, like, still having that there? Um, you know, again, again, I, I think, you know, listen, I, I understand what you're saying in theory. I think in practice, you know, the Torah doesn't want it to deprive. I mean, listen, uh, you're raising a similar issue, a much more difficult issue with gays and lesbians. I'll get to that in a moment. But, but uh, I think the Torah says, you know, there's going to be a consequence. Your kids are going to be moms here, but if you want to have a marriage, go ahead and have a marriage. We're not going to close the door. The problem is much more difficult. You see, one thing leads to another. Yeah. When you talk about gay marriage, you see that that's that's in some ways more difficult because there you don't have really you don't really have the option. Meaning to say, a mamzer, I can tell a mamzer, you can marry a convert, you can marry uh, another mamzeris. You have the possibility of a union. You have the possibility of an intimate relationship, even though there are going to be some complications. When you're dealing with a gay person things are much, much more difficult because there, basically, Judaism does not, in spite of those horrendous, horrendous pictures you might have seen uh, of the, uh, the orthodox, so-called so orthodox gay marriage, uh, there were two boys, two men under the chuppah who were wearing kittles and there was an orthodox rabbi who married them. Uh, okay, horrendous, horrendous, horrendous. Uh, halacha does not authorize under any circumstances, certainly two males getting married, and there you have a, a, a genuine compassionate issue, something that you know, I, I don't want to dismiss. That is, what does the Torah offer the, at least the male homosexual? What does the Torah offer him? What options does he have? He has the option of celibacy, which is hard. He has being celibate, meaning not, just not having any type of sexual union. Celibacy, which is very hard. He has the option of uh, aversion therapy, trying to change sexual orientation, which works in a small percentage of cases, but can also be dangerous. In New Jersey, it's illegal. <laughs> a doctor can go to jail for even trying that therapy. Uh, those are kind of the only two options, right? Celibacy. You can marry a woman. Okay, so, mar uh, oh, so the question is, so marrying a woman. So the question is, now here is something I'm aware of. I am aware of gay people gay men who married women to try to be part of the Jewish community but didn't tell the women that they were gay. They, they made believe they were heterosexual. Now it's interesting, Rav Moshe Feinstein, he's coming up a lot today. He actually had a responsa that said if a woman marries a guy and discovers he's gay, she doesn't even need a get. 
This is an annulment. This is considered to be a mistaken, fraudulent marriage, which doesn't even need a divorce. However, there's another option that some Hasidic communities do. This is fascinating. So for is it only sorry if the woman doesn't know? Only if she doesn't know. Oh, no, only if she doesn't know. But what if the husband is bisexual? So oh. he is actually attracted to her, but then yeah. he's also attracted to her. Yeah, but, but well, let me put it there. I, I, I have no compassion for a bisexual because he doesn't need to sin. Meaning that's like saying, I'm attracted. I love bacon and I love hamburgers. Okay, so, so have, the, have the hamburgers. Meaning to say, a bisexual person, the Torah commands him, you know, uh, indulge, you know, enjoy your intimacy with, with, with the one that you're, that you're able to, with the heterosexual level. In that case, that would not be an annulment, I think. I think the annulment would only be if he's totally, totally gay. So what some Hasidic communities do is this. This is very interesting. They match gay men mm-hmm. with lesbian women. Now, you might say, well, what's the, what's the sense of that? Because although sexuality is a very important part of marriage, it is very important, it's not the only thing, right? Marriage is about companionship, it's about caring for each other, it's about creating a family. And here the concept would be, nobody's being deceived. If a gay guy marries a heterosexual woman and she doesn't know, she's being cheated, she's being deprived. she is hooking up to a man that is not attracted to her, and that's fraudulent, and that's offensive, and that's why Rabbi Feinstein says she doesn't need again. But guy is gay, woman is lesbian. They know, what, they know what they're getting into, and they can decide that we will be roommates that care about each other. I mean, people can have deep friendships, just like men can have deep friendships, women can have deep friendships, even if they're heterosexual. We can have a deep, loving friendship, and we can adopt children or whatever it is. Uh, and so, so that's been an attempt to create some type of alternative. I mean, that doesn't satisfy you sexually, that's true, but, but at least it creates some sense of belonging to a community. So you might find it bizarre, you might find it crazy, but some feel it, you know, it's, it's something that works on some level that they can have like a 65% marriage. And that could be better than, than having a zero, yeah. I'm curious, so theoretically in this situation, both the gay man and lesbian woman have to like be out enough in their Hasidic community that they can be matched up? Yes, 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 yes. And that's like, seems like maybe that would be difficult. Well, the more common scenario to the extent that it's common at all is that people are hiding, so you'll have the gay guy who goes through a regular marriage, and that's what will often be heartbreaking tragedy. Yeah. Now, because of the general culture, people are coming out a little bit more, even in insular communities, and on, on a small level scale, they've tried to create these, these unions. It's very, very, very recent. Uh, so again, as I say, you might either think, you might either think this is crazy and, and senseless, uh, but if you think about it, uh, you, you could see a certain value because if you're a married, a married woman, a married man has a certain stature in a community. Uh, they have a certain place in the community. And they can still raise children and they can, you know, have Shabbos guests and all those things. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I mean, listen, um, who was it? Okay, maybe I should. Uh, very, very famous guy, uh, Freddie Mercury. 
which goes back a few years, right? So Freddie Mercury himself was was gay, but uh, he was he wasn't married, but he basically he was, married, was he married? Yeah, but he basically considered the woman that he was married to as his the one that he loved most in the world. And it was well, a strange was, thing. Yeah. Okay, okay, I, I, I don't want to get into the specifics. Yeah, okay, sorry. But, but, it was, but all I'm saying is that it's possible, as it were. I mean, just like, you know, uh, men can have a best friend of a man without being gay, and a woman can have a best friend of a woman without being, without being a lesbian. Uh, you can have a very deep, loving relationship that does not cross the line into a, uh, into a sexual attraction. And uh, that could be a type of marriage, too. That's a form of, of marriage. Marriage which could be a very loving and caring and deep marriage, yeah. So a gay man and a lesbian woman, are they allowed to have children themselves? And if they do, will it be considered the man did for a group or not? Yeah, if they can, because again, different, I mean, it depends if they physically could, but, but uh, if they could have children, even if they hate the sexual act, but don't do it, you know, do it for God, and uh, at least they do it for God in England, as in Victoria, okay. Uh, they, they would, they, he in fact would fulfill, be fruitful and multiply, 100%, 100%. That would be the theoretically optimal way of doing it, but as I say, I, I, I'm not sure if that's what they do. Yeah. Okay, modern Haruka answer. So, this couple's... Wait. Okay, never mind. Okay. I mixed up a question. Yeah, head. yeah. Um, I have a question going back a little bit to what we were talking about about the Um yeah. I'm not sure why you said if a married Jewish woman um, has a relationship with a non-Jewish man yeah. that her child is not a mamzer. That's and correct. I don't think you explained that. I didn't explain why. That's just a halakha. I don't even know why. You don't uh, know. But, I mean, I, I know it's in the Gemara, and the Gemara has a derivation for it, uh-huh. but it does not give a, a reason. And logically, it's a bit of a, it's a, bit of a mystery. Okay. I'll tell you a story, and this is a law that's, that's very important to know because a lot of affairs are with non-Jewish people. It's important to know that. You don't have a mom's your problem. Uh, we had a boy in Orsameach who was born. Uh, uh, his mother was married, but he was born from an affair. And uh, therefore, he was in doubt whether he was a mom's your. So we needed to investigate the validity of his mother's marriage. If his mother was halakhically married, he might be in trouble. If his mother was not halakhically married, he, he's just out of wedlock. So this was very, very difficult because his mother had married in 1959. His mother had married his adopted father in 1959, and we needed to determine, was this an Orthodox synagogue in 1959? Because the synagogue had changed. And it was very, very complicated. It was hard to know. Uh, the rabbi had died. And, um, but at some point, somebody found a video of this rabbi officiating at some other marriage, and it seemed to be a kosher marriage. So that created a lot of problems. If the rabbi in 1959 was an orthodox kosher rabbi, he probably had kosher witnesses, so the kid was born from an affair. So at that point, I said, we have to go to a higher authority. I told the guy, listen, I, I'm no longer comfortable being lenient here. We have to you know, go on a higher level, above my pay grade. So he then said, oh, wow. So not only is my father a goy, but I'm a mamzer too. So I said, what? <laughs> yeah, my father was a goy, yeah. So I have two strikes against me. I said, no, you don't. I, I, I should have, it was really my, my, my mistake in not even asking the question. Uh, this was the very thing that saved him because 
his mother had an affair with a guy, he was in fact not a mamzer. Right? So it all it all worked out for the best. <laughs> it was so funny. He thought he thought that I was like giving him like two strikes against him. Oh, my father's a guy and I'm a mamzer too. Yeah. So what if there was a marriage between two men or two women whose romantic attraction was gay, but they were both bisexual, so they would never actually engage in sexual acts? So that, that, that's an interesting question. Uh, the interesting question is, the Torah does not prohibit the marriage, whatever that means. The Torah prohibits the sexual expression of gay. So theoretically, if you have two asexual people who just want to live together and call it a marriage, um, I cannot point to any prohibition that is being violated. And indeed, that's sometimes a bit of the defense that is given you know, in, in the very left-wing Orthodox communities called open orthodoxies, beyond modern orthodoxies. Very, very left-wing. Uh, they sometimes justify conducting same-sex uh, marriages by basically saying, hey, we're not telling them to have sex, you know, we're just doing a marriage. But, you know, most people are not asexual, and the problem basically is once you do these marriages, you're going to be legitimating sinful behavior. But technically, if it does not have sexual expression, it would not be prohibited, per se. But it still wouldn't be a marriage, but they, if they want to have a ceremony, uh, nothing's going to stop them. Well, but but they, they, wouldn't be, they wouldn't be allowed to make the blessings. But what I'm saying is, with regard to romantic attraction, if it was in every way an emotional marriage and an emotional connection, they just didn't have sex. I, I think that's fine. I, I, mean, I mean, maybe it's not optimal. Obviously, it's not optimal because God wants us to have heterosexual marriages. But if two men have deep, deep emotional love and caring for each other and they are each other's anchor in the world, or two women, that's what they have. I mean, these are, the, these are their anchors. Uh, you know, I, I'm not going to condemn somebody, somebody for that. Say again? Well, well, well. It wouldn't be a marriage. I mean, it would be a fake. Wouldn't be. It wouldn't be called a marriage. We wouldn't call it a marriage. We wouldn't. Uh, it, they, they could not get halachically married, but they could live a life in which they consider. I mean, listen. I mean, people say their dog is their wife. I mean, I mean, whatever, whatever it is. I mean, uh, not everybody in the world gets married, and people people find other emotional substitutes. So. Uh, if, if, if that is your emotional substitute, halacha will, will allow you to have that emotional substitute as long as it doesn't express itself in a prohibited way. So you can have two men that are fundamentally living as a marriage without prohibited sexual expression, or two women, and I can't say that that's forbidden in any way. Well, that's a good question. Uh, but does everyone has a soul mate. So what does God, what is, the, what is the soul mate of a gay person? Right? 40 days before you're born, there's an announcement made in heaven about who you're going to marry. 40 days before you're born. So the question is, assuming God is not going to say, you know, John is going to marry Jack, I mean, assuming that that's not what Hashem is going to announce, because that's against the Torah, and even God has to obey the Torah. So is there a soulmate? I, I don't know. Uh, either there's a soulmate uh, at an emotional level, 
or it that. It was predetermined you know. we were going to marry. Yeah. Well, that goes back to the issue whether, is it implicit, I mean, this is a deep question, is it implicit in the Torah prohibiting homosexual, uh, uh, homosexual expression that you could change sexual orientation? There are some people who have argued, I don't agree with it, that if the Torah says you're not allowed to do this, then it's got to be you could change your orientation. I don't think that follows. The Torah says you're not allowed to do it. That implies you can control your behavior. But that's not the same thing as changing your orientation. I mean, that, that's like saying if you're born without an arm, uh, you could grow back the arm. Maybe not. Maybe that's your disability, but you've got to compensate. So I don't know. That, that's, a, that's a good question. It's a tough question. Yeah. There is a Jewish man who's, who has a valid wedding, whose marriage is valid, and then he gets like a legal divorce that he doesn't get, get, and he remarries in what is supposedly a valid yeah. kosher wedding. Yeah. Is his child a monster? No, he's not. And the reason is because that goes back to the idea that in the eyes of Halacha, he is a man that's committing adultery. But a man who commits adultery with a single woman that he's now married does not create mamzer. So a mamzer can only come from a woman who, it, it's, it's only about the mother. That's correct. That, you have a kosher wedding where there was no get? No, no, you, 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 actually, you actually cannot. But what happens is sometimes that the, the, the second rabbi doesn't know. No, I mean, and the problem basically is he was fooled. Now, the second rabbi should, should have verified this, but it does happen sometimes that the rabbi is not aware of. But retrospectively, it turns out that the rabbi did all the right things, but that was still not a valid marriage. Well, it is, it is a valid, after the fact, it is a valid marriage. Oh, because he's a man. So that's correct, so that's correct. That's correct. He's married to two women. That's that, that, that is correct, well. that is correct. Now, had it been a woman, the marriage would have been invalid. That, that's correct. Okay, uh, any uh, hand up? Uh, yeah. If, so we're saying on the basis that if a, man, if a woman gets married to a man and finds out that he's gay, you can say that the marriage wasn't a marriage. That's what Moshe said, yeah. yeah. So going on that basis, like if a woman, let's just say, had an affair and had a child, and this child's not a man's there, and later on it comes out that this child is actually, this woman is actually a lesbian, would you say that the initial marriage wasn't a real marriage, and therefore the affair wasn't actually like an affair? Because she wasn't happy married. Uh, might be. That's a that's, 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 that is a possibility. That is a possibility. Now, I actually had a case when I was a rabbi in Silver Spring. I had a case of a um, a woman who had got a woman had received a get, and uh, once a woman gets a get, she cannot marry a kohen. You know that a divorced woman cannot marry a kohen. But after she received the get, she also got an annulment because her first husband was gay. So the decision that was made is that because of the annulment, even though she had a physical get, she was never married. And because she was never married, she was allowed to marry a Kohen for the you second time. Oh, so this is the thing. So now let me talk a little bit about, about this. Uh, people, this is something that may be important for you to know, and there are a lot of uh, misconceptions here. So let me clarify a few misconceptions. Uh, when a man is a Kohen, a descendant of Aaron, a Kohen, a Kohen cannot marry a number of women. Right? So one of the things that every woman has to ask herself is, can I date a Kohen? 
So who can a Kohen not marry? So here's the thing. A Kohen cannot marry a woman that received a get. That's number one. That means a get. A Kohen can marry a widow. Only a high priest cannot. But a regular Kohen can marry a widow. Cannot marry a halachic divorcee. And a Kohen cannot marry a woman that had intercourse with a Gentile. Cannot, cannot. Now, if a woman is not a virgin, but she had relations with a Jewish person, she can marry a Kohen. She can marry a Kohen. A woman does not have to be a virgin to marry a Kohen. That's a common mistake. A non-virgin can marry a Kohen as long as she has not had intercourse with a Goy. If she had intercourse with a non-Jew, she is not allowed to marry a Kohen. Now, in addition... Well, uh, if you don't, no, 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 no. So, so the halach is very clear that uh, if we don't know, if the Kohen doesn't know, he, he you know, he's fine. Uh, but if she knows, if you're, you know, if you are a religious woman and you know this halacha, uh, and you, if you have that situation, you have to tell the shatran that you cannot go out with the Kohen. Uh, it's up to, it's up, you know, it's, it's, you're on the honor system, really. I mean, uh, no one's going to know one way or the other, but I'm just telling you what the halacha is, and then you, you decide you know, how honest and forthcoming you're going to be. Uh, now, there's another rule, another rule as well, and this is going to be back to the mamzer problem. A woman who converted to Judaism also cannot marry a Kohen. So we have the divorcee cannot marry the Kohen, uh, the one that had uh, intercourse with a non-Jew cannot marry the Kohen. Uh, a, a woman who is converted to Judaism cannot marry a Kohen. And there's a fourth woman who cannot marry a Kohen, which is, this is going to be an odd one, <coughs> a woman who is a Jew, born a Jew, but her father is a non-Jew. Even though she's 100% Jewish, she cannot marry a Kohen, <coughs> but this is the strangest of all. But if she went ahead and married a Kohen, not knowing this halacha, they are allowed to stay married after the fact. The other one's not that way. The other ones, they have to get divorced. If a Kohen marries a divorced woman, the halacha says they have to get divorced. But if a, a Kohen married a woman whose father was not Jewish, bidiyevet, bidiyevet means after bidiyevet, after the fact, they are allowed to stay married. Yeah. But if the woman was raped by a Kohen? Yeah, so unfortunately, with respect to the laws of Kohen, there is no difference between consent and, uh, and uh, rape. In fact, this is so serious, let me, let me tell you this, that if a woman is already married to a Kohen, if she's already married to a Kohen, and she is raped by a, a non-Jew, under the strict halacha, they would have to get divorced. But it's not her choice. It's not her deciding that she's going to. I, I understand. But, but here is the funny, here is the, not funny thing, but here is the twist. 
The twist is that given and the fact that we don't, we, don't, we, don't believe, we don't believe confession, so to speak. So essentially, this is a psychologically very treacherous grounds, the Kohen can stay married by not believing that she was raped. He doesn't have to believe. She says she was raped. She said, I don't have, you know, I don't have to accept that. Now, this is a really between a rock and a hard place. Because psychologically, if God forbid somebody is the victim of rape, they want their spouse to support them, they want their spouse to validate them, they want their spouse to believe them and, and help them through their pain, right? That, that's what you want, what a person wants. But here is the crazy catch-22. If I believe you, we can't stay married. So I have to disbelieve you. How do you control what you Yeah. Just about what you say on the outside. What you say on the outside. But like, if you believe that you're not, you're so, just not admitting to believe. That's correct. It's really external. So, so what you have to do is this. Not you. When I say you, I mean the husband. What I have to do is, in this rare, this is a rare situation. Remember, it's only a coin. It's only a coin. It's not a. If you're not a coin, that wouldn't be an issue. Uh, the coin says, or he has to. I believe that you believe you were raped, and therefore I know you're in pain, and I'm here for you. I believe that this is what you believe. But I don't believe it. What's the reasoning behind this? Well, halacha has many rules of evidence, meaning facts have to be established by certain standards, like witnesses and the like. And because of this, people's confessions, people's statements are not the requisite evidence. I guess what I meant was, what's the reasoning behind the divorce being needed? Well, because, well, it, 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 it follows from the general rule. If the rule is a woman that had relations with a guy, with a non-Jew, cannot be married to a Kohen, so even if she's married to a Kohen, they have to... What's the reasoning behind that? Yeah, so that's, uh, it's hard to understand. I mean, you obviously see that because the Kohen has a certain sanctified special status... He has to be connected to only a limited category of, of partners. You know, these, uh, these are kind of, we don't, we don't have reasons for all of them. I mean, but we do know the Torah itself does say these things. These are not made up things later. The Torah restricts marriage. Now, let me point out the following idea. Many people... Yeah. Is it just by, sorry, just by a guy if she's raped, or is it by a Jew as well? Okay, so, it's, so, all right, so, so it depends. If a single woman... Was oh, raped. Okay. Yeah, yeah. So the truth of the matter is, uh, any 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 rape is going to create the same problem. Jew or gay. Yeah. Now, we have in the Balchuva world, the world of people who are older in Judaism, we have what is called a Kohen crisis. Kohanim have trouble finding suitable marriage partners because if you're a Kohen, if you're a male Kohen, so here I'm going to ask you to commiserate with men for a little bit. If you're a male Cohen who's 35 years old and you're going to date, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm being male-centric here, it's a you, a man is going to date a women who are approximately the same age. Usually, right? A 35-year-old is not going to date an 18-year-old. Right? So women by the age of 35 
might be divorced. They might have been sexually active if they were not religious with, with non-Jews. So it's hard for Kohanim, or uh, maybe a convert might be a good shidduch, but it's a convert, so a, a Kohen cannot marry a Giyowit. Or a Kohen Lechazchila should not marry a woman whose father is not Jewish. Right? So the pool of available people for Kohanim shrinks as the Kohen gets older and older and older, and the lot. So this is called a crisis, a Kohen crisis. So what we discover in a lot of circumstances is that many people So what we discover is, this is important, many people who thought they were Kohens are in fact not Kohens. In other words, just because your name is Cohen doesn't mean you're a Cohen. And even if your ancestors were Kohanim, that, that status could be forfeited. Let me give you an example. I had mentioned to you a Cohen is not allowed to marry a divorced woman. Okay, that's true. What if a Cohen marries a divorced woman? Anyone be able to now the kid, the kid is not a mamzer, but the kid is no longer a Cohen. <laughs> the Kahuna has left, has stopped. So I'll give he has, he has tri- he's a man without a tribe. <laughs> yeah. So which means which means um, I don't know, no man's land, I don't know. Probably with the you probably live with the Levine. So let me give you an actual case. Uh, this was a case that I was not involved in, but these are friends of, of ours. Uh, here was a man who was raised as a Kohen, but in a secular Jewish environment. Second, he was not in no religion at all. He got married to a, not a converted woman, he got married to a non-Jew, an intermarriage. Intermarriage. Had five kids, all of whom are Goyim. The non-Jewish woman got interested in Judaism. And she was becoming more and more and more religious. This happens sometimes, that the non-Jewish spouse is attracted until she reached the level that she was ready to live an orthodox life and accept Shabbos and Kashrus and Nida. And although her husband was not religious, but he loved her enough that he would, he would go along with it. Do you see the problem the Basin has? The Basin says the following. Well, we got a problem here. It's true that right now you're living in sin because you're a non-Jew, so obviously it's, it's totally forbidden. But in order for us to convert you, you have to accept all of the halacha. She's not doing anything wrong. No, she's not, but, but he's, he, yeah, she's not doing so, anything wrong. So far, he's doing wrong. He's doing everything wrong. Right. right. But if we convert you, you are now a Gioris. And if your husband's a Kohen, a Gioris and a Kohen cannot live together. So we can convert you, but there is a possibility. We want to check with higher up authority. There is a possibility. We can convert you only if you are willing to leave your husband. Are you willing? Is becoming a Jew so important to you that you would leave your husband? So they brought her in and they asked her this question and she broke down crying and sobbing and said, if this is the will of God, I accept it. 
Yes, yes, Colin can get divorced, yeah. So they then called in the husband. And the husband, who was not that religious, said to the basement, you guys are idiots. If you think I'm going along with this, you're crazy. He stormed out. So she was willing to go the furthest degree. So once again, they asked Ramosha Feinstein. Again, Ramosha Feinstein was the address for all of these hard questions. And here's what Ramosha Feinstein said. Yeah, a Cohen cannot marry a divorced woman. Uh, I'm sorry, a converted woman, that's true. But how does she know he's a Cohen? See, evidence is so critical here. The answer was, his father told him. Is his father a kosher witness? Mm. Is his father Shabbos observant? Is his father halachically observant? No. So Rabbi Feinstein said, the father is not a valid witness. If the father is not a valid witness, we don't know if he's a Kohen or not. Well, they research as much as they can, but if they only know it from the father, we then follow the rule that since most Jews are not Kohanim, he's not a Kohen. So Rabbi Feinstein Paskin, he's allowed to stay married to his converted wife because he's not mechuyav, he's not obligated to assume he's a Kohen just because his father told him he's a Kohen. So, fascinating enough, we find this in many, many instances, that people who think they're Kohanim perhaps don't have the evidence. Now, we don't routinely permit this, but in cases where people are already married, there's already children, there would be hardship, there would be pain. In other words, I think what you see today in a lot of contexts is the crucial role that evidence plays in halachic determinations. Just as I told you with Mamzer, that... We assume it's from the husband, even if there's DNA, unless we had witnesses or something of that nature. Or in this case, uh, we assume he's not a Kohen, even though his father told him he's a Kohen. Or we don't accept confessions, even if mom says she had an affair, right? We don't listen to it. So halacha works with, on one hand, the rules of halacha might be very strict, but the rules of proof are also very, very strict. And because the rules of proof are so strict, in many, many cases, we are permitted to be lenient because we don't have the requisite evidence that would create a situation of difficulty. Yeah. Can a Kohen marry someone whose father was born not Jewish but converted? Uh, yes. 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 Uh, After co- the birth. No, no, no. So no, as no, no. before. That's correct. In other words, uh, the Cohen can marry a girl whose father Conver- was a converted Jew. Gotcha. But a Cohen cannot marry a girl whose father was not Jewish, who then converted after her birth, or after the pregnancy, actually. Yeah. So a Cohen cannot marry a converted woman. That's correct. Can he marry a converted woman's daughter? Yes. Yes. As long as it was yes. That, right. That does not. Right. That does not carry down. That, that's right. That's right. Yeah. Um, are there any laws for the daughter of a Kohen? No. So the daughter of a Kohen is uh, pretty lenient. Uh, for example, uh, the daughter of a Kohen, Kohenet, uh, she can go into a cemetery, which a Kohen cannot do. She can marry a divorced man, so she has. Uh, she is permitted. In fact, the story. You know, one, one of the most famous Kohens of the twentieth century was the great, great, sainted rabbi, the Chafetz Chaim. Have you heard of the Chafetz Chaim? He was a great, great tzaddik in Europe. He died in 1933, so very few people 
know the Chavitz Chaim, uh, we're still alive. And the Chavitz Chaim was a great, great tzaddik. And uh, his la- youngest daughter just passed away like a few years ago. So she, st- she would still have reminiscences about her father. So she said her father was so kind and gentle and sweet, but he was insistent on certain things that you could never lie, meaning to say, whatever you promised to do, you had to do. So he mentions that he wrote Svarim. And you know, sometimes when a book is printed and you open it up, you see some pages are blank. The print didn't take. So he would ask his children to go through the books just to see if there were blank pages. So she was going out to play, and he wanted her to go through 10 sets of books, which would be 60 volumes. And she said, when I come home, I'll do 100 sets. But I can't do it now. So she runs out. She comes back three hours later, and there are 600 volumes. And she says, 600 volumes? That's 100 sets, because each volume, each set was six. You only gave me 10 before. He says, but you said you were going to do 100? If you promise, you have to keep it. So she writes that although her father was not a disciplinarian, he was very kind, very gentle, but he was very insistent that you have to keep the truth. So sometimes she says, it was hard for her to live with such a tzaddik. <laughs> so she says, when she needed to get away, now Radin, she was in Radin. Radin was a very small town. There was not, uh, there was not a Ben Yehuda street in Radin, whatever it is. So when she needed to get away, she would go into the cemetery because her father, Cohen, is not allowed to go into the cemetery. She's allowed to go. So she figured she was safe from her father in the cemetery. So uh, although some kids were scared of the cemetery, you know, this was kind of her private her private place. Yeah. A question about that. So if a Kohen is not allowed to do anything with dead bodies or anything, if a Kohen um, kind of who isn't religious and decides to become an archaeologist, yeah. do they, does anything happen to them if like, they decide? Yeah, so this, so this is the first point. It is true that unfortunately a Kohen who's already religious is not supposed to become a doctor because he will be involved with dead bodies. The question is, if he was not religious, he became a doctor. Is he allowed to continue in medical practice? Uh, the short answer is, by and large, yes, if, if he is needed for life saving, potential life saving. So it really depends on the type of specialty he has. But if he is needed to potentially save lives, like he's a cardiologist or whatever it is, then pikuach nefesh, saving a life, would override the prohibition against uh, Tomek. What if he's just a person who works with, like, Require. Uh, no, when you like when you like go and you find like bones, like literally. Archaeology. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> what happens if that's his job and you literally just? Yeah. Well, he may have to. I may have to change jobs. I, I know. But I'm saying, so. would it affect anything? Like when, like when you, like you said that. If, 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 oh, would it take? Would it take away his? No, it would not. It would not. In other words, okay, he's still a calling, and he might have to change change work. Okay, yeah. No, there is not. There is not. There is not. You cannot renounce it. Is there any way you can lose this scholarship? Well, there's no way you can lose The Cohen no, can lose no, it, he can but, but he, can, he, can, he can lose it. He can take it away from his kids. Meaning, if a Cohen marries a divorced woman, he is still, he is still a Cohen, but the child from the divorced woman is not a Cohen. Right? So he can cause his children. He could end it with him, but he himself cannot forfeit the status. Yeah. Why can't a Cohen Uh, again, the Gemara, the, the, these are these are 
derivations from various biblical verses. So, so again, we were not given a, a reason for it. It's connected conceptually to the same reason why you can't marry a converted uh, woman because we, we essentially want... In other words, if the mother is not Jewish, then the kid would be a, a convert and that would be a psalm, that would be an eligibility. If the father is not Jewish, the child is Jewish, but the Kohen can only marry a child where both parents are Jewish. So really it's an extension of the conversion aspect by focusing on the, the lineage has to be Jewish on both sides. And why is it that sex with a boy prevents a woman from you know, ultimately, we would have to explain this in mystical ways, and the mystical ways may not be that easy for us to understand, and that is a relationship with a non-Jew does create a, a special spiritual impurity, and that spiritual impurity is a contradiction to the holiness that the Kohen is supposed to bring to his job, and therefore there would be a certain taint uh, in, that, in that relationship. Now, it's complicated because on the other hand, if a woman was with a non-Jew and now she does tshuva, we, we would assume Hashem forgives the Avera, Hashem erases, I mean, that's what tshuva is. And yet, with respect to the Kohen, even the smallest traces of the impurity of that past, uh, the Kohen must keep his distance from. So it's really connected to the spiritual detriment of being with the non-Jew. Yeah, good question? I just want to say thank you. Oh. All righty. Okay. Take Thank care. You so much. Thank, you. Okay. Thank you. Yeah. Be well. Where is is there a clock in this room? Yeah. Uh-huh. They're gonna get one for that side also, but I haven't yet. Yeah.